Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that uh, however we're feeling tonight, uh, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, uh, that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, we ask that you'd help us to see and believe that you're a God who talks, and we pray that you'd surprise us and thrill us and correct us uh, as you show us Jesus, for we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I've been in New Zealand now for uh, 17 days, and I've been interviewed uh, seven times, uh, mostly by Rowan. So every two and a half days, I have to remember kind of what age I am and who I'm married to and the names of my children in roughly the right order with roughly the right ages attached, you know, where I've lived for the past 49 years and so on. Now, I'm not complaining. You know, it kind of goes with the territory. You move away, you go away from home to do something, and it's natural that people start the process of, of getting to know you. You need to hear me speak. You need to be assured that it is actually English that's coming out of my mouth, and it, it's kind of vaguely comprehensible. And you need to make up your minds if I'm likely to say something that's vaguely useful from the Bible. But that's only the beginning, because it takes a long time to get to know someone properly. You know, because I look around, you're, you're almost all strangers, hardly met any of you. But there are a few of you that over the past couple of days have met, you know, we've shaken hands, we've had a short conversation. There are a couple of people, I mean, I'm staying with Dave, you know, I met, met Rowan nine days ago, we've, you know, had a few plane journeys together, car journeys, we've spent some time, you know, to the point that I'd be kind of reluctantly happy to accept that these two guys are now actually my friends, you know? But there's lots they don't know about me. They, they've never been to our house in Brisbane. You know, they've, they've not met my kids. They've never been where I'm from. You know, they've never seen me yell at the TV when I'm watching sport, never seen me cry. The whole pile of stuff that they, they just haven't seen because we haven't known each other long enough. To really get to know somebody takes a long time, which is partly why the Bible is so long. If you've ever wondered why there is so much of the Bible... It's because God, the God of the universe speaks to us in the Bible to say, come get to know me. This is what I'm like. Let me introduce myself to you. See, the ultimate goal of the Bible, in part at least, is to introduce the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to people like us. And that takes time. And these chapters in Exodus are an important part of this grand, massive project. See, this part of the Bible is here to help bring us face-to-face -face with the real God. Now, the events in these chapters unfold like this. Moses is talking to God on a hill called Mount Sinai. Down at the bottom, the people rebel. God, after a quick conversation with Moses, acts in judgment. After judgment, God acts with real kindness, grace, to both the people and to Moses, whom he shows more about himself. Now, that's the basic kind of flow of the chapters. We'll see more about the details as we go. But for now, I want you to get the fact that the double-edged message of this narrative is that this God is the God of judgment and the God of grace. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible, the God of judgment and the God of grace. And if we get our heads around that this evening then our time will not have been wasted. So let's start with it, the tougher bit. God's judgment is real. It's part of who He is. Now, if you were around last week after the riveting chapters you looked at, 
in which God gave Moses a blueprint for a tent, which the Israelites were supposed to make and erect in the middle of the camp. After God gave the Israelites instructions for how to assemble their warehouse furniture, chapter 32 starts with an enormous fizzle. Now, if you read through the book of Exodus, you'll have read how God rescued them from Egypt, bringing a world superpower to its knees through plagues, that God brought these people through the Red Sea, crushing the military power of Egypt on the way, brought them to Sinai and appeared to them and spoke to them and said, you are mine. God incredibly gave them even two stone kind of post-it notes, which were somehow written by God Himself. He said, this is how to live with freedom for me. Now, just wait there a moment. <laughs> And what happens next? Everything goes instantly, completely, spectacularly, disastrously pear-shaped. I have a nephew and a niece are twins. Um, they're, they're 15 now, but many years ago, they were staying with us along with my brother and his wife as our family gathered for a special family celebration. And my brother said that as he lay in bed, he heard the twins wake up. They were sleeping in my study just downstairs. He heard they were up and he thought, should I go now? Oh, five minutes won't hurt. <laughs> was all it took. Five minutes. In five minutes, they'd managed to find a jar of Vaseline, smeared it all over one another's heads, plastering their hair to the head. That only took them two minutes, so they kept going. Every exposed surface of my desk was covered with Vaseline. I think that took them another 30 seconds. They then got every CD in my extensive CD collection and took every one out of its jewel case and smeared the CD with Vaseline. Five minutes. Very impressive. That was all it took. Now, the Israelites took a little longer than five minutes, but the mess they created was even worse. 32 verse 1 says this, when the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain, they literally ganged up on Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. How can I put this? This was not good. The Passover, the plagues, the Red Sea, Sinai, then this. What were they thinking of? Basically, they decided to take control. In that sense, this is Genesis 3, the events with Adam and Eve revisited. Back then, our first parents refused to submit to God's right to call the shots and did their own thing. Here, in Exodus 32, only a matter of days after the most dramatic rescue, these people decided to do the same, to take control, to remake God or gods, to, to make a God that had a remote control <laughs> where they could call the shots. They swapped the real God for a God that will do what they tell them. So they show up and crowd around Aaron like angry soccer players around the ref, and they say, make us a God. Now, at this point, Aaron's got some options. Like, for example, he could say, no. <laughs> the fact that just a few chapters earlier in Exodus 20, God has said, you know, kind of hard to understand statements like this, do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything under the heavens or on the earth below or in the waters. You must not bow down or worship anything else, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That should have given Aaron the hint, but it didn't. Straight away, he caves. <laughs> 32 verse 2, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Now, where did they get these gold rings? 
the Egyptians had given them to the Israelites on the way out as a ridiculous sign that God was blessing His people, (laughs) that as they fled, they were showered with gold. What do they do with it? All the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. At this point, Aaron said, oh, what a terrible mistake. I need to fix it. No, he didn't. He built an altar before it. He made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, burnt, offered burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, sat down to eat and drink. They got up to, to revel. The word revel is hard to translate there. It's hard to know whether they just have a party, they just get drunk, or, or they're actually praising, making a loud noise, praising the idol. Either way, it's not good. Both Aaron and the people are very enthusiastic about serving this substitute God. Later in chapter 2, we get Aaron's own insight in this, uh, this incident. 32 verse 21, Moses asked Aaron, what on earth did this people do to you that you've led them into such a grave sin? How could you be so stupid? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know what they're like. The people are intent on evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us. Verse 24, I said, if you got gold, take it off. And they, they gave it to me. And when I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. Is that the best you could come up with, Aaron? Really? I just threw it in the fire and it just popped out. No. No mention of the engraving tool (laughs) that we've already been told about. Verse 25, Moses saw the people were out of control because Aaron had let them get out of control. See, both the leader, Aaron, and the people have behaved appallingly. They've switched the real God for an idol. God told them to make a golden box for God's words. And they made a golden calf. All the way through Exodus, they've been heading for a celebration of Yahweh's goodness in the wilderness. But that never happened. This celebration, this festival, is the only one they celebrate. Now, you see, this is part of the overwhelming flood of evidence in the Bible that people like you and me are severely messed up. Because remember, the, the function of Israel in the Bible sometimes is just to act as a visual aid of what we are all like. This is what Adam's race does when left to themselves. That's why Paul can say in the New Testament, you know, this stuff is written for us. Their problems are our problems. Their mistakes are our mistakes. Their choices are our choices. We're flawed people who repeatedly do the wrong thing and repeatedly don't manage to pull off the right thing. And like the Israelites, we are capable of making spectacular mistakes very, very quickly. I don't know if you've thought about it like this, but, but let's face it, we are all just two or three quick bad decisions out of making a complete shipwreck of our lives. This is who we are. And it all flows from the fact that we have decisively and repeatedly rejected the God who made us and who loves us more than we can even imagine. But you know what? That's not really the main point of these chapters. Exodus 32 and 34 aren't really about us or even the Israelites. They're about God. And all this depressing detail about Israel's rapid descent into stupidity is really just a backdrop for what comes next. As we see that God's judgment is very real. You can see that everywhere as the events unfold in these chapters. God is the judge. 
Look what God says to Moses, 32 verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have act corrupt, acted corruptly. They quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves an image of a calf. They've bowed down to God. What happens next? Verse 17, Joshua, who's hanging around on the mountain waiting for Moses, says, oh, that's a funny noise. Must be a battle. Moses says, verse 18, no, it's not the sound of a victory cry or the sound of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. <laughs> singing, it seems, in praise to this golden cow. As he approached the, ca the camp, he throws the tables, the tablets containing the law down in anger and rage. In verse 20, he, he does something which recurs later in the, in the Pentateuch, later in the book of Numbers, which he makes the Israelites drink water with the powdered gold of the calf in it. It seems to be it's some way of finding out who the, the guilty people, the ringleaders are. And from 32 verse 25, God punishes His people. Moses saw they were out of control. In verse 26, he stood at the camp's entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him, one of the tribes of Israel. He told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. 32 verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Verse 35, the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. It's shocking. God intervenes. He identifies. He judges. He punishes. 3,000 of the people he's rescued die for rebelling against him. This is our God. I hope you can see that in the, the, the unfolding narrative of Exodus, this is not an overreaction. This is not a bad-tempered outburst. This is a careful, considered expression of what our God is like. Uh, we, Fiona and the, uh, the kids were with me until the start of the week, last week, whenever it was, last week, we're down in Rotorua on Tuesday night. Uh, Rebecca, our youngest, got sick Tuesday night. She said, about 11.30, she shouted for me, called me and said, you know, Daddy, I'm going to be sick. And I'm going to go to the bathroom. So she went to the bathroom. I followed her downstairs. I walked into the bathroom. She said, I'm still feeling terrible. She's sitting on the, on the seat of the toilet. She then proceeds to vomit all over the bathroom floor. Now, I'm not proud of this, but I had been asleep. I'm not at my best when I've been woken up after an hour. I then shouted at her. I said, what are you doing? How can you be sick on the floor when you're sitting in the toilet? Get off the toilet. Be sick in the toilet. The poor little girl said, oh, daddy, I've been sick everywhere. I'm going, I know. I'm going to have to clean it up. No. And Fiona says, you're not being very nice, Gary. And I'm going, okay, I'm sorry. Are you okay? You know, you know, I'm not proud of that. That's, that's my reaction. You know, an outburst, knowing I'm going to have, I mean, it's not fun. Knowing I'm going to have to clean up this mess. And she was sitting on, no, anyway, no, that's right. No, that, that, that's me. That's a flawed, unpredictable, you know, outburst. That's not what happens here. This God is the conqueror of all the powers of Egypt. 
This is the God who has rescued all His people and set them free. This is the speaking God who has tenderly explained to His people what living in freedom looks like. This is the God who's already walked them through a blueprint for life with Him at the center of the camp and the tent. And this is the judge who cannot and will not ignore evil. I have a friend who's a normal, well-adjusted, red-blooded Australian male in almost every way, except for one thing. He watches the American TV series, The Gilmore Girls, almost obsessively. Actually, there's no almost about it. It's just obsessive. Really sadly, for the rest of us who work with him, a new series is about to begin, and I know what it's going to be like. Week by week, we're going to get an in-depth account of every new episode that we are not interested in, but there will be no stopping him because it's kind of part of who he is. It comes as part of the package. To get to know him, to have him as a friend, unfortunately means we have to come to terms with this strange part of who he is. And that's the challenge of this part of the Bible. See, God tells us all this about himself because this is part of what our God does. Knowing that our God is the judge is part of knowing God. It's not the full story, but it's an important part. In a similar passage later in the Old Testament, in in, in Isaiah, the prophet describes this part of God's character like this. The Lord will rise up as He did at Mount Perizim. He'll rise in wrath as at the valley of Gibeon to do His work, His strange work, and to perform His task, His disturbing task. (laughs) And it is strange work. It's disturbing. But to get to know God, to come face to face with the real God, involves coming to terms with His strange work of judgment. So is your view of God, your understanding of God, your knowledge of God, big enough to embrace the angular reality that in the words of the ancient summary of the Bible's teaching we call the Apostles' Creed, one day He will come to judge the living and the dead, because He will. This is who God is. He is the judge, and His judgment is real. But the marvelous news is, so is His grace, His kindness, His undeserved mercy. I have to be honest with you, there are some details of Exodus 32 to 34 that are very difficult to explain. They're unusual and provocative. They're hard to nail down. So, for example, the statements in 32, 9 to 10 are puzzling. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we read anything like this, where God says to Moses, I've seen this people, they're stiff-necked. In the Old Testament, if you're stiff-necked, you won't listen. You won't turn your head to either side to hear the words being said. God says this, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into the great nation. God says, okay, Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to hit refresh, start my plans all over again with you replacing Abraham as the father of the nation. Is God serious? He seems to be. What happens next? Well, Moses argues with God. More strangeness, because God appears to change his mind, revise his plan of action. You can see that from 32 verse 11. Moses intercedes with God. He says, look, remember everything you've done? Verse, verse 12, remember your reputation? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out only to kill them? Verse 13, remember all the promises you've made to Abraham from Genesis 12? Verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the disaster he said he would bring on his people. In a way, this is Moses' finest hour. He says, God, don't you remember your promises? Don't you remember the way you've treated your people, loving them, making them your son, bringing them this far? 
He says, you can't do this, God. And God listens. Throughout these chapters, Moses has a passionate concern for the people. 32, uh, 32, he says, if only you'd forgive their sin, but if not, please rub me out from the book you've written. Moses says, look, I'll pay for their sin if I can. The problem is, of course, he can't. He can't even pay for his own sin. But, but he's just immensely tender and caring. But the, the main focus here, again, is not on Moses. It's on the fact that somehow the God of the universe, the God of judgment, the God of the exodus, is the God who is prepared to show kindness, mercy in real time. God listens revises his course of action. He even forgives. Now, it would be really easy this evening to get completely distracted by the fact that God changes his mind in this passage. How can that be? How can the God who made the universe, the God who knows all things, the God who knows the beginning and the end, the God who stands outside time, who is perfect and flawless and just and right in all his ways, a God who gets every decision right, how can he switch horses in midstream? How can God do that? Let me reassure you, I've read as many commentaries as I can find on this. I've read lots of moral philosophy and ethics, and I've come to the following considered conclusion. I have no idea. (laughs) Beats me. And I'm not convinced that anyone else has got a very good answer either. Here in this part of the Bible, God reveals Himself to us as a God who actually listens to us and responds to us and in some unfathomable way accommodates Himself to us. How does that work? How does that fit with other things the Bible says about God? I don't know. I know that the Bible insists God is not unpredictable and inconsistent like us, and yet somehow, in some way, God here bends down to listen and cares and even appears to shape His plans for the benefit of people like us. Now, of course, there's more to say about this in the Bible, but don't miss this, that in real time, God shows His grace, His kindness to people like us. Instead of wiping Israel out on the spot, He listens to Moses and mitigates the punishment. There is still judgment, but in a much more limited way. And instead of Exodus 32 being the end of the Old Testament, it goes on. You can see how it unfolds in chapters 33 and 34. The Lord spoke to Moses at the start of 33 and says, go, leave here and go to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My promises are still on track. And even though God withdraws a little, keeps his distance, even though the tabernacle isn't built straight away for God to dwell in the middle of his people, 33 verse 7, they get a temporary solution. Moses sets up a little tent of meeting. God is still there. He is still speaking. In chapter 34, he continues to make his undeserved kindness known. What does he do? Gets Moses to make a replacement set of stone tablets where he renews his relationship with his people. To use the language of the text, he refreshes his covenant, the unfolding commitment of God to his people that that dominates the opening books of the Bible. Verse 10, look, I'm making a covenant with you. I'll perform wonders. I'll do new stuff with you. I will come through in my promises. I'll take you into the land, verse 11. And how does the book of Exodus end? If you look right to the end of the book, it ends with the glory of God descending on the newly constructed tent. God is back. Exodus 32 isn't the end of the story. God gives them another chance. God's grace is very real. (laughs) 
See, these chapters are supposed to tell us that God's judgment is real and His grace is real. And if you get that, you have got to the heart of these chapters, or almost. Allow me to point out one more thing in these chapters, and then we're done. There is a feature of these chapters, which I think if we, if we read it thoughtfully, raises some big questions, okay? Say we get the fact that God's judgment is real and His grace is real. How do, how do we know which will win? Is God basically a judge who is occasionally benevolent, you know, gracious, is a soft touch two days a week or something? Or, or is God sort of generally a soft touch and then occasionally He loses it? Does He alternate? You know, is God the judge on Monday, Wednesday, Friday and kind of God of grace, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? How does this work? When we interact with God, how, how do we know whether God will treat us with grace or as we deserve? I'm not sure there's an answer in Exodus 32 to 34 which I think explains the one key part of the chapters that we haven't touched on yet. Just look with me again at 32 verse 12. Look at what Moses says to God. He said, God, you've told me to lead me, lead this people that like some more details. But look at verse 13. Now, if I find favor in your sight, please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. If I can paraphrase, it's as if Moses asks God to explain how all this fits together. I've seen that you're God the judge. I've seen you, you're God, the God of grace. Please tell me how this works. Please explain. After God commits to stick with Moses and his people, Moses, not one to be fobbed off, presses further. Verse 18, Moses said, please, let me see your glory. Now, it's hard to say exactly what Moses is asking for. Hasn't he seen God's glory already? Hasn't he lived through the Exodus? Hasn't he seen the fiery cloud and pillar? What did he get to see on Sinai in the tent of meeting? Well, I don't think Moses here is asking to see more fireworks. I think he's repeating his question from verse 13. I think he's saying, please, God, show me your ways. I want to know you. Show me how all this works together. Show me what you're really like which explains God's slightly cryptic answer in verse 19. Moses says, show me your glory. Show me the full story. And God says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. You know, this isn't kind of supernatural Indiana Jones and the uh, you know, on the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing. It's not that if he sees God, if he opens the box, he'll get zapped. God says, you can't get me. <laughs> you, you, you don't have the equipment to understand how this fits together. Moses says, show me your glory. Tell me how grace and judgment fits together. What does God say? I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Verse 21, the Lord said, here's a place near me. Go stand in the rock. My glory will pass by. You can have a glimpse of my back. You can't get the full picture, Moses. And it's picked up in verse 32, chapter 34, verse 2. And eventually in verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses and says something. What does he say? Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
because he's the judge. God says, I am the judge. I am the God of grace. That's all I've got for you just now, Moses. And Moses bowed to the ground in worship. There's no answer. But the trajectory for the rest of the Bible is set because there is a sense in which this question remains unanswered all the way through the Old Testament. Again and again and again, we see that God is the God of tender mercy at great length in the Old Testament, showing immense patience to His people. And we see that God is the judge of all the earth. How do they fit together? How do they fit together? The Bible has no answer until we come to the coming of the Lord Jesus and His death on a cross. Because it is only there on the cross that God finally provides the stunning, breathtaking answer to the question that we've seen on the lips of Moses and we see on the lips of His people ever since. How can a gracious God judge? How can a consistent, moral God let people off and forgive when they're guilty? Here's how the Apostle Paul sums up God's answer in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice that deals with anger, a propitiation through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness, righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. And then this, God presented Jesus on the cross to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous or just and declare righteous, forgive the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul's argument is relatively simple, although the language is complex. Everyone deserves to be judged, and yet God finds a way not just to acquit them, but pardon them through Jesus. How does he do it? He does it on the cross, which works as a sacrifice that deals with both guilt and anger. Jesus, whom God loves and who loves God perfectly. Jesus, who owes God nothing. Jesus Christ, who is guilt-free, is the one who sorts it out. Jesus pays our debt and deals with the relational anger that we have provoked. And the key is in verse 26. It's on the cross that we see how God can be gracious and just at the same time. It's on the cross that we see God the judge and the God of grace. Here's how it fits together. In Jesus, the one in whom God's glory is revealed, the one in the New Testament describes as full of grace and truth, full of grace and justice. It's in Jesus that we get the answer to every question posed, not just by Exodus 32 to 34, but by the whole Bible. It is in God sending His Son willingly to take the punishment that we deserved and the anger we've provoked that we see how our God manages to be utterly consistent, to be just and gracious at the same time, to be the judge and the rescuer. To see this is to come face to face with the real God. To grasp this is to know God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been following the Lord Jesus for a long time now. And the longer I go, the more amazed I am by what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. At the start, when I first became a Christian as a teenager, I happily admitted that I was sinful and broken. I knew that God was pure and just. But as the years have rolled by, I've provided plenty of evidence, both to myself and other people, 
that I am more sinful than I first thought. The trajectory of my view of myself over these years has unfortunately been like this. <laughs> and at the same time, I've been uncomfortably reminded over and over again and grown in my awareness of the fact that God is holy. That today I think God is more holy, more powerful, far harder and evil than ever I thought before. That my view of God's nature, my view of God the judge has gone like that. There's the problem. My view of God has gone like that, and my view of myself has gone like that. (laughs) But the beautiful result of that is my appreciation of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ has gone from that (laughs) to that. And we'll continue to expand, I hope. Because it is as we gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ and and reinterpret our own lives in the light of what He has done for us. It's as we gaze at God in the flesh, in the death and the resurrection, that we realize that we are so wicked that someone had to die for us. Because God is a just judge. And yet we see that God loved us so much that He was willing to send Jesus to die in our place because He is a God of grace. It's as we gaze at Jesus Christ dying instead of us on the cross that we see what Moses never saw. (laughs) We see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God face to face (laughs) as an anticipation of gazing on the beauty of Jesus forever as part of the new creation. This is the gospel, and it's here through the gospel by the Spirit that people like us get to meet the real God face to face through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would show us through Jesus tonight that you are the judge and you're the God of all grace and mercy who forgives us in the Lord Jesus. Help us to see that, convince us of the truth of that, and help us to take hold of that truth for ourselves, whether for the first time or or for the umpteenth time this evening. Help us to believe the gospel, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've just heard, God is a God of grace. He's showing us this grace through Jesus' death on the cross. This next song, This Is Our God, really emphasizes that God is a God, not only of judgment, but of grace, and who chooses to love us every day, even though we go against him. So let's sing this next song together and be grateful for what God's done for us. Let's sing.